June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. You know, there's a lot of very good news out there in terms of ISIS's defeat of the caliphate. They lost a ton of leaders, but on the flip side, a lot of that capability is being reconstituted. We're looking at a core of ISIS that is still exercising command and control. Reconstituted in? In Iraq Iraq, and Syria, primarily in Iraq, in very much of an insurgency form. But I think it's important to note that they've known that this has been coming for a couple of years, and so they've been planning for it. This is an order of magnitude more people than ISIS had uh, six, seven years ago at the beginning of the insurgencies. When I testify now, Complacency is the word that I use a lot because I I do worry that we are a bit of a victim of our own success. There is a bit of a fatigue factor, I think, settling in with terrorism in general. And because we haven't seen, obviously, a large-scale attack in the United States on the the scale of 9-11 in two decades, there's a a sense that maybe the problem has gone away. I, I completely agree that there is a bit of a lull, and that's a good thing. But I think it's at the same time There are a lot of ominous trends out there, and I I don't think anyone wants to view this low as continuing perpetuity. We've got a lot of work to do. You've been at the intelligence business for a long time. How do you think about the IC operating in such a politicized political environment today? At the end of the day, the intelligence community, we provide facts and objective analysis of those facts, and we try to keep the debate intellectually honest. And it seems to me that if we just keep our young people focused on that, keep their heads down, just do your jobs. It's hard when the institutions are getting hammered the way they are. I look around a community that I'm incredibly proud to have been associated with. These are very bright people who are trying to do nothing more than good government and be supportive of our policymakers, irrespective of party, irrespective of affiliation. So long as we do that, I think that they can keep their heads up and they can do good work and hopefully stay out of the political fray. Russ Travers is the deputy director and former acting director of the National Counterterrorism Center, or NCTC. He has served in a number of senior roles at NCTC. 
Russ has also served on the National Security Council staff as the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Transnational Threat Integration and Information Sharing. Russ is a career intelligence officer. I just had a chance to sit down with him to discuss the work of the NCTC, today's terrorist threat picture, and a wide range of other issues. I should add that Russ is the first interview of what will be our Leaders of the IC series. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Russ, welcome to the show. It is great to have you on Intelligence Matters. It's my pleasure, Michael. So, Russ, maybe the place to start is by having you talk a bit about your career in the IC and how did you find yourself working on terrorism at the end of the day? Sure. Uh, it was a lot of serendipity. I started out as a military intelligence officer in the Army and had always thought I wanted to go to law school. So I took the opportunity when I got out of the service to come up to D.C., went to law school at night and worked at DIA for, for several years. Spent some time with the National Intelligence Council. Do you remember um, what you worked on at DIA? I was primarily a Soviet analyst. Okay. Um, as, as were many people at as the time. As back in that generation, for sure. And at the tail end of my time at DIA, I was working on Soviet perceptions issues, kind of trying to get in the head of what was going on with change in Soviet Union. So it was really interesting. And was selected to go to the National Intelligence Council for a couple of years. So I spent uh, two years as a deputy NIO. I went back to DIA as a sort of a senior, the equivalent of a national intelligence officer for the Defense Department. And DIOs, I think they were called. They were called DIOs, that's right. Defense intelligence officers. Indeed. And then... uh, my, my hierarchy at DIA thought I needed to get some current intelligence time, so I went down to the J-2, and I spent about three years as the senior person down in the, the joint staff as the, the deputy in the, in the J-2 office. And from there, my wife was foreign service, so I was looking for an overseas slot. And J-2 so. is the intelligence? Is it is the director for intelligence on the joint staff, yeah. right. We went to London for two years, from 99 to 01, and then 9-11 happened while we were there, and I got called back to be one of the deputies at DIA, and I had the Homeland Security account at the time, and spent a couple of years doing that. And then in 2003, when President Bush announced the stand-up of the Terrorist Threat Integration Center to bring together uh, CIA and, D- and FBI, John Brennan, headed TTIC at the time, he was looking for a defense intelligence SES, and so I raised my hand because I very firmly believed that the kind of the interagency approach was the way to go. So I pretty much spent all my time either bouncing back between NCTC and, and the White House since then. Yeah, and at the White House, you were, remind us? Uh, I had two jobs. Uh, one, I worked for John Brennan as the, the guy that was working on WikiLeaks issue back in 2010, went back to NCTC, and then went back to the White House as a special assistant to the president doing kind of transnational issues. I was very firmly of the view that we could utilize lessons learned from the counterterrorism fight for all other transnational issues. And so I tried to expand on that while I was at the White House. So, Russ, what's the role of NCTC? What does it do every day? Yeah, it's an important question because when we were formed, there was already a robust counterterrorism community. And so the way I, I try to explain it is in, in the early days, we were working on the tactical shortcomings associated with the 9-11 problem. How did, why did we miss it? What were the information sharing issues? Why weren't we properly coordinated and integrated across the government and so that was really the first several years we were focused on that. I think there is actually a probably a broader issue, and that is NCTC, I think, will prove to be sort of the first foray into how the government deals with the downsides of globalization. And so we're really fleshing that out as we work through the counterterrorism effort because these problems that straddle foreign and domestic, they don't lend themselves to 
any one department or agency within the government. And so as a result, NCTC kind of serves that. We straddle the, the foreign and domestic, and therefore we support both FBI and CIA, and we draw from information across the entirety of the government. So we have broader authorities than anybody in terms of accessing information. Russ, perhaps we can dig into the current terrorist threat picture facing the United States and our allies. And maybe the place to start, because it's in the news, is Iran. Can you talk a little bit about Iran and terrorism? Is it a state sponsor of terror? Do you consider the attacks on commercial ships acts of terror? How do you think about Iran? Yeah, there's no question in our mind that that Iran is the single biggest state sponsor of terrorism. And the the Quds Force, as you may have seen a few weeks ago, was designated as a foreign terrorist organization. And the way they will use the militia groups, the Shia militia groups, to attack, whether it's political or, or military targets around the Middle East, is a matter of tremendous concern to us. And so we certainly do do view those as state sponsored terrorism. And they have a long history. They, they do indeed. In decades. this area, yeah. Secretary Pompeo has said that the Iranians were responsible for a recent attack in Kabul that injured four U.S. servicemen. Is that the way you see that attack? It is. Um, we can't go very far into that, but yes, we do believe that the Iranians are pretty far afield and they are, in fact, courting in many nefarious activities around that area. And why, why at the end of the day, mm-hmm. would the Iranians, I think I know the answer mm-hmm. to this, but why would the Iranians want to support a Shia group, the Taliban, or a Sunni group, the Taliban, right, when they're Shia? Why would they want to do that? Anything they can do to poke a stick in the United States' eye is something that they're going to do. They want us out of the area. They want to be the hegemon in the area, and and we are a counterweight to that. And then maybe the most important Iranian terrorist link is Hezbollah. Could you talk a little bit about Hezbollah, the threat it poses not only in the region but more globally? Effectively the same answer. As you say, Hezbollah has been a a problem for us for many, many decades. Nasrallah is a very serious actor. He has cultivated capabilities. He's the leader of Hezbollah. He is the leader of Hezbollah. We think that they're careful in terms of their degree to escalate. They don't want war. I think there have been instances before where there have been miscalculations, and he wants to be careful about that. Uh, But he certainly has a very rich set of capabilities to utilize against Western actors. And to remind people, I think this is true, correct me if I'm wrong, but prior to 9-11, Hezbollah had killed more Americans than any other terrorist group. No question. That's right. Russ, does any other country come close to Iran as a state sponsor? Is Pakistan up there? How do you think about that? None whatsoever. They are in a category of themselves. The Pakistanis, though, if we could just maybe unpack that a little bit, this administration has been... All administrations have been frustrated with Pakistan's support to terrorist groups. This administration has done it publicly to a degree that others haven't. Why do the Pakistanis provide support to the Taliban, and then why do they provide support to anti-India groups? Well, um, this too goes back decades. The Pakistanis have been and will forever be very concerned about the Indians, and they will look at their proxies as an ability to push back against India. They're feeling a little bit isolated themselves, and so they will take every opportunity to push back uh, against any perceived enemies. Okay, ISIS and al-Qaeda. handful of questions here. What's the primary difference between the two? 
Well, they come, they've come up through different areas. Obviously, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was an offshoot of, of Al-Qaeda, and that became ISIS. They do have different theological approaches in that elements of ISIS have declared Al-Qaeda to be apostate. There are areas in which ISIS and Al-Qaeda will cooperate, for instance, in West Africa. There are areas in which they fight amongst themselves in Yemen and in Somalia, Given the views of the, the necessity of a near-term caliphate, which was very much in ISIS's view, uh, al-Qaeda was much more long-term about this, uh, you have those kinds of differences in, between and amongst themselves. So the ISIS mm. threat, how do you see mm. it in the aftermath of the collapse of the caliphate? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of very good news out there in terms of ISIS's, uh, as you say, the defeat of the caliphate. They lost a ton of leaders for a while, they were having a very difficult time exercising command and control, pushing money around. But on the flip side, a lot of that capability is being reconstituted. We're looking at a core of ISIS that is still exercising command and control. Reconstituted over, in? In Iraq, Iraq and Syria, and primarily Syria? in Iraq, in very much of an insurgency form. But I think it's important to note that they've known that this has been coming for a couple of years, and so they've been planning for it. And so they're operating in insurgent cells, and they probably, at a minimum, there are 14-plus thousand individuals operating largely in Iraq to a lesser degree Syria. This is an order of magnitude more people than ISIS had uh, six, seven years ago at the beginning of the insurgency. So we need to recognize that that combination coupled with the inability of Iraq to deal with very dissatisfied Sunnis in the north and western part of Iraq is going to be a huge problem going forward. But in addition to that, the global nature of this can't be uh, can't be overestimated because they they do in fact have individuals in twenty or so countries, networks that range from hundreds of people to thousands of people. And if you just compare the map, the way it's spreading, particularly in places like Africa. This is going to be a concern for us for a very long while. It's a challenge for the intelligence community because we need to distinguish between and amongst what are local insurgency problems or maybe they are a step higher and they can affect U.S. interests, whether they be private or governmental. And then at the the highest, are they able to reach out and, and touch the United States? And just imagine the challenge this poses to our community in terms of collection and analysis of a very diffuse, diverse threat. In terms of ISIS outside of Iraq and Syria, where are those parts of the world that you're most worried about? Oh, ISIS Khorasan in Afghanistan uh, is certainly a big concern. ISIS Sinai is pretty active. Uh, the, the extent to which we are seeing ISIS sprout up in Africa is a challenge because it's not an area that we are particularly well postured to, to do collection against. There is a, and this a, is primarily West Africa? West Africa, but also in uh, the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Mozambique had a uh, Islamic insurgency problem for t- 25 years. They have now wrapped themselves in the ISIS flag, and, and so they're threatening liquid national, uh, natural gas, uh, F- uh, U.S. interests in, in northern Mozambique. So w- we need to be particularly attuned to sort of where the U.S. interests are and the ability of these capabilities to, to attack us. Do you have the sense that Americans kind of understand what you just said about ISIS? Or 
Because it's my sense that people think problem solved. I think you're exactly right. They do view problem solved, and we need to be incredibly careful. When I testify now, complacency is the word that I use a lot because I, I do worry that we are a bit of a victim of our own success. There is a bit of a fatigue factor, I think, settling in with terrorism in general. And because we haven't seen, we haven't seen obviously a large-scale attack in the United States on the, the scale of 9-11 in, in two decades, even attacks against Western interests, you have to go back several years to Charlie Hebdo for al-Qaeda or for the Paris or Brussels attacks several years. And so there's a, a sense that maybe the problem has gone away. I I completely agree that there is a bit of a lull, and that's a good thing. But I think it's at the same time, there are a lot of ominous trends out there, and I I don't think anyone wants to view this lull as continuing in perpetuity. We've got a lot of work to do, and the, the key question now is going to be the extent to which we reallocate resources and attention away from terrorism. I actually am in complete agreement with with former Secretary Mattis's national strategy that says we need to focus on great power states and so forth. We just need to be careful that we don't take our eye off the ball when it comes to terrorism because we've built what I believe is the best example of integration across our government with the CT community. And it's, well, it's robust. And there, I suspect there are resources that can be taken away. We need to ensure that we don't go too far and undermine our capabilities and put us back in kind of a pre-9-11 state. So we talked about ISIS, Mm al-Qaeda. How do you think about the al-Qaeda threat today? Uh, You know, they've been waiting in the wings. Much like ISIS, we we have a a command and control structure. We have uh, a half dozen or so uh, affiliates. They are to varying degrees in, in better or worse shape. But in general, we're seeing a what used to be a very sort of hierarchical, when we were looking at this back after 9-11, we were focused primarily on one little piece of real estate along the Pak-Afghan border. And now you've got North Africa and you've got Yemen and you've got Somalia. And so what we're seeing, an interesting case from a few months ago, there was attack, an attack against a hotel in Kenya that was executed by Shabab. There was an attack a week or so later executed by JNIM, part of uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, that was conducted against a, a West African UN facility, they came out almost immediately with an announcement that these were both done because of Jerusalem-related issues. It was a, a kind of a, a marketing campaign that demonstrates a lateral level of communication and coordination that didn't exist before. And so uh, their capabilities are of, of significant concern as well. And if there was a particular al-Qaeda group to focus on to worry about, would you say AQAP in Yemen or would you say something else? Yeah, I I think it's um, AQAP in Yemen is probably the greatest long-term concern for us, yes. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Russ Travers. She has brought us the world. It is a new day here in this country. And told America's most important stories. How does a government shutdown affect national security? She's opened our eyes. What happened to you? I was sexually assaulted my freshman year. And our hearts. Were you scared? Mm-hmm. What were you thinking? About my mom. Now, she brings us truth and understanding right when we need it most. Wow, this is pretty spectacular. The CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell, beginning July 15th. 
Russ, let's switch from the actual groups to the homeland, to the terrorist threat here in the homeland. What do you worry about the most? Well, I think the, the, the current threat, as I said, because there is a lull and diminished uh, large-scale external ops capability from both ISIS and al-Qaeda, it is, it is the HVE threat for sure. And, that's and by a, HVE, uh, you I'm mean? sorry, a homeland, homegrown violent extremist threat. And that's a challenge for us because it tends to be very individually specific that the notion of how individuals get radicalized and mobilized uh, to violence there's a lot of people out there and a lot of discontented people out there. And so it's a challenge for our law enforcement organizations in particular. NCTC's role in this is very much along the lines of looking at how the radicalization and mobilization process works in support of the Bureau. And now we are dealing increasingly with not only Islamists, but also right-wing a domestic terrorism problem set. And, and you guys look at that too? We have looked at it traditionally when there is a linkage to overseas. As we as a government think through how we're going to best posture ourselves to do domestic terrorism itself, under our statutory remit, international terrorism is where we are. We have a degree of primacy that the FBI is undoubtedly the lead on domestic terrorism. And so we're we're trying to support them. It is our view that a lot of the individuals who are, in fact, becoming radicalized and mobilized, it's a it's a tactics, techniques, procedures that looks a lot like Islamists. So there's a lot of use of the Internet. There's a lot of the same kinds of um, processes that, that individuals go through, whether they be individualized or group or societal uh, impact on, on people. And so we think we can be value-add there, and we certainly believe that to the degree that right-wing or left-wing efforts, uh, individuals in the United States have got contact with those overseas, then that too is something NCTC. Do we see any of those contacts? Do we see any of those links? We do. I think it's fair to say that there's a lot more of them there than we have seen thus far because it hasn't been an area of intense focus for this community for the last 50 years. And uh, there will be much more of it going forward, but that's partly a collection issue, I think. Yeah. Not only maybe... Some of it's been there for a long time. We just haven't looked for it, but it's undoubtedly grown as well as politics has become more divisive across much of the world. I think that is exactly right, and we need to be careful. And We don't want this to become a cause, uh, and to some degree I'm afraid it already has. Certainly the the individual who conducted the Christchurch uh, has become a bit of a, a celebrity in, in those circles, much like the the kid who conducted the attack up in uh, the Nordics several years ago. And so we're seeing um, Islamists sort of react to what's going on on the right wing. We're seeing the right wing react to everything from immigration to Islamist. And, and that's going to be a challenge for all of us going forward. In terms of the HVE threat, mm-hmm. Uh, particularly as as it's motivated by ISIS. Have we seen a decline in that since they lost the caliphate or or not? Yeah, it's a it's a matter of some debate. We certainly um in, in the case of the United States, we, we have we don't get a ton of these sorts of attacks. It sort of a half dozen or so a year, I think, is is the accurate number. Where we have seen a substantial decline is in Europe. Twenty seventeen was sort of a, a high mark. Last year was substantially lower. Part of that, we think, is because of the decline of the caliphate. Partly it is because the Europeans are just getting better at this, and there's more information sharing and more coordination between and amongst those countries. And so I suspect it's a little bit of both. 
Russ, I want to switch back to some bigger picture issues, if that's okay. And we've touched on these a little bit, but maybe we can go a little bit deeper. The first is how you think about the future of counterterrorism, particularly at a time when so many other national security threats and challenges need the attention of the IC. The extent, and you talked about this a little bit, but maybe a little bit more, the CT as a bill payer for those. And how would you advise the DNI Congress about thinking about risk in that environment? Yeah, it's a, it's a very timely question because I think there there is a constituency that believes that CT does need to be part of a bill payer for some of these other issues. And I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with that. And we have, as I said, NCTC was additive to a pretty robust community that existed at CIA and at FBI and DIA and NSA and so forth. And so what we need to do, I think, as a as a community, as a government, is determine how can we be the most efficiently organized? Do we have the right constellation of organizations and of authorities to work the CT problem to the extent it needs to be worked and then also do Russia, China, cyber? It's a pretty complicated world. And so one of the points I took away when I was at the White House was that the transnational organized crime national strategy had just come out in 2012, I think. And it explicitly said that TOC, transnational crime, was robbed to pay terrorism. All right. When you think about risk and you think about some of these alternative national security problems, transnational organized crime kills far more Americans than terrorism ever will. And yet it is very under-resourced when it comes to collection and analysis. There's a great deal of effort within the law enforcement community, but the national intelligence community is um, somewhat le- has been somewhat less focused on it. So my guess is, as as we move forward, we are going to see some reallocation of resources. Uh, and and the issue is, how do you ensure you have enough analysis, but you're not too redundant? Are we collecting the right things when it comes to the terrorism problem? Again, against a very diverse and diffuse threat which vastly complicates our efforts. Are we doing the big data thing correctly? Right now, pretty much every department and agency is going after all the data it possibly can in support of its analysis. It's probably not the most efficient way to do things, but given the way our community is organized and structured and the authorities construct, that's kind of the way things are right now. So we've got some really hard questions going forward, I think, um, because we are... We are all swimming in that ever-increasing size of the haystack, and the needles themselves are getting more subtle. They're, they're harder to, again, in the HVE context, how do you know when an individual is a particular concern? Uh, this, is, this is eating the lunch of our colleagues in Europe right now. They will have tens and twenty thousands of individuals they should be following. Uh, wh- which one is more important? How do you prioritize? How do you allocate limited investigative resources. My sense is that we are all going to be struggling with this, which means you probably do run the risk that you're going to have small-scale attacks. We are never going to eliminate terrorism. What we're trying to do is get it down to the point where it is a a law enforcement problem and we have enough intelligence community focus on it to ensure that we know if it's becoming a greater problem. So I share the view. Obviously, I spent a huge chunk of my latter career focused on terrorism. So I do share the view about being careful in removing resources. And, you know, one of the things that 
jumps to mind to me, Russ, is how many resources we moved away from the Soviet Union and Russia mm-hmm. and then where we found ourselves, yep. right, in terms of our ability to collect intelligence on what became and what is today and a, a crucial issue. So that should be in the back of everybody's mind here. Yeah, we spend a tremendous amount of our national treasure on the intelligence community. It does seem to me like we should be able to walk and chew gum in all these areas, but it's going to require some really hard decisions, I think. So, Russ, I also want to ask you about something else you hinted at earlier, and that is, do you think there are lessons learned from the way the IC has tackled terrorism since 9-11 that can be applied to the other big issues that we're facing? Yeah, I I very much do. As I, I think I suggested earlier, I believe that the counterterrorism community is the best exemplar we have of kind of interagency integration across our government. And the things that we went through after 9-11, I think have got broader applicability and gets back to this notion of my my own view would be that the, the imperative for our community is figuring out how do we how do we deal with the downside of globalization where issues transcend department or agency equities they probably straddle the foreign and domestic community all right so how, how do you do that and a lot of it begins with information a sharing. great example right would be foreign interference in our politics absolutely it's a great example fits all the categories you just said and and i think that that's really important because it's not just the traditional transnational threats, cyber proliferation, counterintelligence, transnational crime like terrorism, but it's also the great power struggle. It's it's um, interference in elections. It's also Chinese uh, intellectual property theft that goes on. So we as a government are still struggling with how exactly do we deal with these problems? How, how do we ensure that from our intelligence community perspective that we've got our arms wrapped around them and what we found, I think, with the NCTC experiment is that when you bring the government together in sort of a, a very large interagency task force where you bring – we've got 20-odd organizations at NCTC. Uh, we've got all of their networks that come together. You have the cultures of those organizations and then you have reach you have back. the authorities, right? That's too. right. And, and so I, I may be wrong, but I, I'll bet down the road – that we're going to see more of this NCTC-like approach to many of these problems because it's, it's frankly worked pretty well, I think. So, Russ, the, another area I want to talk about is politics. You've been at the intelligence business for a long time. How do you think about the IC operating in such a politicized political environment today? Yeah. Uh, So I I do go back to the Carter administration in terms of my service. And at the end of the day, um, the intelligence community, we provide facts and objective analysis of those facts. And we try to keep the debate intellectually honest. And it, it seems to me that if we just keep our young people focused on that, keep their heads down, just do your jobs, I'm incredibly proud of the the hierarchy within our intelligence community because I think they've protected the young people and um, they've been a, a source of tremendous support. It's hard when the institutions are getting hammered the way they are. I, I, I don't think it's healthy. Having done this for 40 years, I look around a community that I'm incredibly proud to have been associated with. These are very bright people who are 
trying to do nothing more than good government and be supportive of our policymakers, irrespective of party, irrespective of affiliation. And so long as we do that, I think that whether it's our law enforcement intelligence professionals or our national intelligence professionals or our military intelligence professionals, they, they can keep their heads up and they can do good work and hopefully stay out of the political fray. Do your, do your young officers worry about this and how do you talk to them about it? They do. Uh, our director, Joe McGuire, is, is fabulous at, at talking to our young people about um, a f- focus on the mission and just leave all the political nonsense to the seniors. And I, I think it helps. I mean, I think morale is actually pretty high. Honestly, the, the terrorism community has been, um, we haven't been hammered the way some, of the, some parts of our government have. So that's, that's helped some. But in general, it, it, this, is a, this is a leadership issue in terms of ensuring that all of our, our young people are able to come in and do their jobs the way they're supposed to. Russ, you've been terrific with your time. I just have a couple more questions for you. Looking long term, what do you see as the intelligence community's most significant challenges going forward? You know, when, when the IRTPA was uh, Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act that overhauled parts of our community after 9-11 was passed, there was a lot of consternation about whether or not it had things right. I think we're going to have to take a look at that moving forward. But it, when you get down into the kind of the practical issues, data is a tremendous problem for us. Um, you know, when NCTC started, the iPhone hadn't been invented. I mean, what we were dealing with documents off of the battlefield. Now we're dealing with phones and computers. How do we process that information? And how much information is enough? And, and when do you just stop? Uh, we haven't got that figured out. Uh, I completely agree with uh, Sue Gordon, who's been kind of carrying the guide on for artificial intelligence and machine learning. We are going to have to improve our use of technology to process that information. However... We, again, have got all of our departments and agencies within the community do this differently. And so when you have unstructured data that's unstructured in different forms, it makes it really hard for machines to help the analysts do their jobs. And so there's some hard thinking that we're going to have to go through if we have any hope of being able to process that information. I should say uh, we have come light years compared to where we were 18, 19 years ago in terms of our ability to process information and, quote-unquote, connect those dots, we're pretty good at it, and we've done it a lot. Whenever there's a a dot that looks pretty suspicious, we can pull the thread and and we can work with all of our partners, and and good things happen overseas and in the United States. The the hard issue is uncovering unknowns, and and that was – that really came to light in 2009 with the Christmas Day bombing. We didn't know that Umar Farouk Abdelmutal was an important guy. And so a lot of what we've been doing over the last decade as a community is trying to figure out how, how do you uncover individuals when you didn't know they were important? And then how do you find all the relevant information? That's going to be a problem for us, I think, going forward. I think, you know, one of the issues is as fast as the community moves on the technology front, technology is moving in most cases, even faster, right? So how do you, not only how do you get to the cutting edge, but then how do you keep up with the cutting edge? That's right. And it, it's not just technology. The, the fact that technology is going so much faster than legal and policy and security issues, they're lagging behind increasingly. So they're getting kind of left in the dust. And that's a problem, again, 
because these problem sets that straddle foreign and domestic, they've got implications then for privacy, for sovereignty, for crying out loud. And so how do we decide, in the case of NCTC, intelligence community organization, what role should we be playing in domestic terrorism, purely domestic terrorism? That's a a very good question that we're going to have to work our way through. Russ, one more question. What do you want the country to know about the women and men who work at NCTC? You know, we've got about a 1,000 individuals at all ranks, all grades and backgrounds, and I could not be prouder of, of those young men and women. It's really the reason that I've stayed around way past my retirement eligibility date because I, I so thoroughly enjoy and get tremendous reward from the work that they do. Uh, they give up weekends and holidays, and I think the American public doesn't have a clue as to sort of the blood and sweat that, that, that our young people are throwing into this problem set because they care so desperately. So uh, I hope, uh, I'd like to see a, a greater recognition of just the role that our public servants play. Russ, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Michael. That was Russ Travers. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.